2: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor in Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And we are here on day two of our continuing coverage of the Democratic National Convention, the virtual Democratic National Convention. Um, and uh, we all watched last night to the um, all those uh, virtual performances, culminating in Michelle Obama's rousing talk. Uh, okay, Clyman, you were watching. What'd you think?
1: You know, we uh, we keep talking about how there's no more suspense in conventions anymore. The last time there was was in 1952, or I guess in 1980, when. Uh, Teddy Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter in at the convention in New York, but actually the truth is there's a ton of suspense when you watch a virtual convention. You don't know what the hell is going to happen next. First of all, there could be technical glitches. There were some minor ones. They actually got through that pretty well. Second of all, it's not like you just have a, you know, a, a relatively small number of speakers. I mean, there are dozens and dozens of speakers. We can't remember who's, who's coming next, partly because the Democrats have made a decision, which I think is a pretty deft uh, decision, to use this convention to let the voices of the American people be heard. And so there are all these stories that are being told. There was that one uh, woman last night whose uh, father died of COVID-19, who I had no idea she was going to be on. She had that amazing... Line, uh, one of the most memorable lines of any convention, I think, which was that the only pre existing con- condition her father had was that he had put his trust in Donald Trump. So I think it's pretty interesting um, in that way. Look, they're making it up as they go along, sort of, and they're seeing what works and what doesn't. But it's been interesting.
2: Yeah, uh, interesting lineup uh, of heavy hitters tonight. John Kerry, former candidate, Democratic candidate in 2004, Bill Clinton, former president, Jill Biden, uh, AOC is speaking. And the one that interests me is Sally Yates, the former deputy attorney general in the uh, Obama years, who was so key in. Um, standing up and opposing the president's uh, Muslim ban from day one, and also calling attention to uh, the Flynn, Mike Flynn phone calls with the Russian ambassador. She is uh, supposed to be on the short list to be attorney general under a Biden administration. And I would think having her on the convention lineup uh, is uh, a good way to position her for that. So that's an interesting speech to watch for tonight.
1: Yeah, and one last thing I think we should note about last night was Michelle Obama's speech, which I think is certainly going to be go down in history as one of the really um, important and, and impressive uh, convention speeches. And Brittany Shepard, who covered it for us and, and wrote, wrote our story for Yahoo News, made a really interesting point, which is that that speech, it may be that um, doing a virtual Convention and doing a, a, you know, a speech like that uh, outside of the arena without a huge crowd was really an advantage. That Michelle Obama couldn't have given a more intimate, quiet speech if she had been in an arena where people were expected, where well, she was expected to, to, to rally the crowd and get those cheers. And so the question in, that that poses in my mind is how's that going to play for Joe Biden? Does Joe Biden need the crowds? Uh, does he need to feed off of their energy, or is he actually better in a more intimate, quieter setting? So those are all the kind of interesting questions that this kind of uh, virtual convention are raising. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the next few days.
2: Well, we got two uh, uh, good guests uh, for today's episode. Uh, Congressman James Clyburn, who also spoke last night and um, who was so key in um, turning this race around and uh, uh, getting Joe Biden the nomination. And we've also got Yasmin Taib, a, a DNC member, a Bernie delegate who is supporting the ticket but voted against the Democratic Party platform and is among the progressives trying to push The Biden camp away from traditional Democratic foreign policies to something more progressive. So, uh, two good issues to explore. So, let's get right to it. We now have with us the House Majority Whip, Congressman James Clyburn from South Carolina. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery.
0: Thanks. Good to be back.
2: Interesting moment in our political life, and it's fair to say that if anybody can take credit for Joe Biden's nomination as the Democratic candidate for president this year it is you it was your endorsement on the eve of the South Carolina primary that completely changed the trajectory of this race and basically put Biden on the path to the nomination so uh how does it feel to see your uh, your endorsement and your work play out
0: well as you know, Joe Biden and I go back a long, long way. Um, I have been doing events with him for years. I know Joe very well. He has a background, the experiences I think are necessary for the country right about now. And so I thought uh, that uh, he really, of all the people, there are a lot of good people running, and what, two dozen people? I thought he was the best chance of taking the uh, White House. And so I started talking to people and, uh, and sure enough, there was a reservoir of goodwill there for him. The problem was that uh, he needed a little bit of validation because uh, there's so many people in the race, a couple of uh, several African-Americans in the race, um, uh, people were toned. So, uh, I've, you know, following my hunch and listening to people, I decided to go very, very public with the endorsement. Now, in the endorsement, people kind of zeroed in on the speech I made that day. I've since listened to the speech. As you know, it was extemporaneous. I didn't have a single note. And I've since listened to it. And I think I can understand why people got connected to it, because the speech was kind of emotional. And... But what we did was organize. People missed that. The day before the South Carolina debate, I taped some video ads and some robocalls and we made the decision that if it worked and we had a good day on the 29th of February, which was the primary day, then we would start out Sunday morning with um, ads and robocalls, which we did throughout the super tourist estates. And so we, we worked at it. It wasn't just uh, something done haphazardly. And using the work of um, uh, Antoine C. Wright, who is my media consultant, it worked. And so you feel good when, when a plan works. Yeah, I made enough of them that didn't work. So I feel pretty good that this one worked.
1: Congressman, we're speaking today, uh, one day after certainly the most unusual convention uh, night that we've ever had in our history. To some extent, the party had to make it up and uh, see if it worked. You spoke last night, you spoke about Joe Biden's humanity in contrast to the current president. I'm wondering, how do you think it went last night for the Democrats, for Joe Biden and uh, did this really unusual convention, without crowds, without all the fanfare, spread out across the country, entirely virtual? Do you think it connected with voters, and if so, how so?
0: I think it did. I'm a little bit um, disappointed with my speech. I uh, I think you know I pronounced all the words correctly, but um, I I, uh, I wanted to be a little more attached to the community that I was in. I thought that you could really make a virtual convention work if you really connect with your surroundings. And I was there on top of a motel in Charleston, South Carolina, directly across the street from Emanuel Church, where those nine souls uh, were murdered. I was on the five blocks from Gaston Wharf, where about 60% of the Africans who came into this country and were enslaved, where they came ashore. I was directly across the street from the old John C. Calhoun statue that the city had just taken down. And so I mentioned that in my speech, but I really wanted to put more context to those things. Uh, you could not do it in three minutes. If I had four minutes, I think I could have given a more effective speech and people know. We'll give truth. you that
2: extra minute right here if you'd like to deliver it,
0: Congressman. Well, that's why I'm, I'm pleased that you would do that. Because, look, when you're talking about the journey that we've come, I, I've talked often about the fact that our whole social system in this country is built upon two pillows. One pillow built by people who came to this country of their own free will, seeking freedom. White people. The other pillar, Black people who came to this country not against their will and were enslaved. And these two pillars form the foundation upon which we've established this society that we are trying now to deconstruct. And so I think that most people in this country, I think, that's why Black Lives Matter. That whole movement is now taking on such meaning. When I mean, people were able to see a black life being stuffed out, the way George Floyd's life was, stuck, was struck out, people began to give a much more of an appreciation uh, for uh, that whole movement. And so, I really wanted people to get an appreciation for for Joe Biden. Joe Biden comes from Delaware. Uh, I remember somebody saying to me, this is the first time in a long time we have not had a Southerner on the Democratic ticket. I said, are you kidding me? And I said, what do you think Delaware is? Uh, He said, Delaware was one of the states involved in Brown v. Board of Education. Five cases, one came out of Delaware. It's the eighth uh, largest uh, black population in the country. And Joe Biden has that kind of background, that kind of experience. That's how he got into politics. So I wanted to tie him a little bit more to that. Uh, I didn't have time to do it.
1: One of the things uh, you've said, Congressman, is, is that Joe Biden has finally put to rest this uh, notion that Democrats have taken the black vote for granted. How has he done that?
0: What- well, uh... put, uh, putting a woman of color uh, on the ticket. And I'm saying it that way because she is Asian and Jamaican, Jamaica, making her black, and she's always identified as being black. She's a graduate of the H. Historical Black College and University, Howard University. She is a member of the first black sorority uh, ever established in this country, Alpha Kappa Alpha. And so she's always identified as that, and she's always been identified by everybody in California, everybody in this country. So a lot of people have argued, well, she really ain't black. Well, She's always identified as a black and she looked black to me. So I think putting her on this ticket, and it became very clear, and I think everybody will admit, the last two or three standing, after all the polling and the vetting taking place, were black women. And it became very clear about three or four weeks ago that this was going to be a black woman. Uh, And so I think Joe Biden, putting on the ticket, uh, ought to put that to rest. Now, there's never any real substance to that argument. That's the wedge issue that's been used time and time again. How do you say that Democrats take blacks for granted when we've got 54 uh, black people uh, in the United States Congress uh 55, 54 blacks and one, you know, only one Republican in the House of Representatives. And so you said they are taking us for granted? All of us run with party support. So there's never been any real truth to that, but uh, people use it a lot, but this ought to put it to rest
2: uh you know the last time you were on this podcast a few months ago you told us you did have a candidate who you wanted to see as biden's running mate and you had told shared that with biden but you wouldn't share it with us so right. now that it's been selected was it kamala harris
0: yeah uh, <laughs> no question about that i um told uh joe in the waning days that um My head and heart were at war, and I told him that I didn't think he could go wrong uh, with either one of the three people that he was discussing with me. Uh, But in terms of background and experience, I thought Kamala Harris had run statewide uh, in California and had been successful. Uh, She had been out there on the trail with him, and she had demonstrated her debating skills both as a member of the Judiciary Committee, and taking him on, on the campaign stage. I I told him all of that, I thought, worked in her favor.
1: Do you think that uh, Vice President Biden's uh, head and heart were at war a little bit? In other words, he might have known that Kamala Harris was the smart choice uh, for a lot of reasons, but he didn't know her that well. He didn't necessarily at the start of this, feel simpatico with her. That's the word he uses. Did it take a while for him to warm to the idea and, and decide that it was the right choice? Did you, and did you help him get there?
0: I don't know whether or not um, that's really was his problem. You may recall, he talked even after that confrontation in that first debate. He was so disappointed at that because... He felt so close to her. She and his son both had become great friends, both of them being attorneys general of their respective states, and they had developed a relationship between their families, and I think that caused some problems. Now, a lot of his supporters had a problem with Kamala. I don't think Joe ever had a problem with her, but his longtime friends and close friends Uh, but it's uh, expressed publicly problems. And so you you always have a problem when you you like somebody and all your friends don't like them. That's a problem for you. So I think he was working through that, but I don't think he ever had any problem with Kamala as a person. And you can't hold a debate against anybody. You remember 12 years ago, he had a little problem in this debate with, um, uh, on the stage with Barack Obama. He said something that uh, uh, a lot of people took offense at. Obama didn't hold that against him and asked him to join the ticket. So I guess he's just passing it on.
2: Congressman, you were among the House Democrats who had expressed a great deal of alarm about uh, the uh cutbacks in service that the Postal Service had been planning. We just got news today that Mr. Lejoy is suspending those cutbacks until after the election. Does this uh, alleviate your concerns?
0: No, sir. Not one bit. Why not? Because as Maya Angelou says, when someone tells you who they are, believe them the first time. So he's shown us who he is, and I'm going to believe him. All of that took place after he had a personal meeting in the Oval Office with the president when he went out to do all of this. So I got to believe uh, that it's not just him. I got to believe the president has said it himself. We can't let that happen. Because if we let them use the mail to, to, to bail in ballots, we'll lose. The president said that. So I don't know why all of a sudden people are going to think that this announcement changes things. I just left the post office, the rural post office here in my district. And you all to see the people who are out there today, the whole community. I didn't even decide to do that until yesterday. And the community showed up. Uh, all the media over there, simply because Post offices have an emotional attachment, especially in rural communities. And I just believe that they knew this president's got very low regards for the constitution of the United States. The post office is enshrined in our constitution, in existence before we ever had a constitution. I call it the thread, the major thread that holds the fabric of this country together. It was the post office more than any one uh, entity that made our motto relevant. "E pluribus unum," out of many, one. The post office contributes to that more than any other institution uh, in our society.
2: I just to drill down a bit. You say you're not at all. You're not one bit alleviated in your concerns. Oh. So, what specifically do you want? the House to do at this point about
0: the Postal Service situation. I want the House to fund, go back with the monies that we put in the HEROES Act, what we're going back there to do. I want enough money in that act for us to have pre-paid, first-class pre-paid ballots going out to people. What this president has done is had and a sophisticated poll tax. Uh, when you say you've got to use first-class mail and you can't use prepaid postage mail, that's putting the poll tax, in my opinion, on the vote that the same process you should not do. Uh, so I just believe that this man has shown us who he is. I think we need to, if they support full funding. Uh, for the postal service to have an effective and efficient ballot casting in order for us to allow people to vote during this pandemic. We're asking people to stay at home, and then we are saying, you got to come to the polls in person to vote. What kind of contradiction is that coming from the president of the United States? That's why we can't get rid of this pandemic because they're doing crazy stuff. We ought to do everything that we possibly can to get rid of this, this pandemic. And one of the most effective ways is for people to stay at home and for elderly people that we know are most susceptible to this virus or to contracting the virus. They ought to be able to sit at their kitchen tables and vote from home. We all not have to uh, go out and, and run the risk as he made them do up in, uh, up in Wisconsin and the Republican legislature in Wisconsin overrode the governor who wanted people to be able to vote from home. They did that because the president wanted them to do that. And I'm not making that up because the president said it. Said all they're trying to do is trying to defeat my candidate for the Supreme Court. Well, his candidate got defeated anyway because the people don't like that kind of stuff. And I can tell you right now, a lot of people I've heard them, they've told me, I'm going to put on my mask, and I'm going to put on my, uh, uh, get my uh, picnic basket, my folding chair, and I'm going to the polls. And as uh, I think Mrs. Obama said last night, pack a lunch, and if so, pack a breakfast and stay there all night.
1: Congressman, you chair the House uh, Select Subcommittee on Coronavirus. You mentioned the p- pandemic. One of the things that uh, you all are investigating is uh, aspects of Operation Warp Speed to develop this vaccine in record time. You have concerns about potential ethical issues, about transparency issues, primarily involving the leader of that team, uh, Dr. Monsef Slaoui, who headed the vaccine department at uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which has been the beneficiary of huge contracts as part of this process, Uh, What are your specific uh, concerns, and um, what are you doing about it?
0: Well, I think it sounds like you've seen the letter we sent to them, and that's what we're going to do. We've asked them questions in that letter. Uh, We want them to answer uh, those questions, and then we will decide uh, whether or not there's any follow-up to be had. We want them to be transparent with us. There's too much going on relating to this uh, pandemic, that's not transparent. Uh, And Warp Speed is just one of them. And if you go back to his naming, this stuff started just before he was named to run this this effort. We just saw uh, another letter that's gone out for me with Kodak. What, $765 million you can give a camera company? They make real good cameras, but they've never been in the pharmaceutical business. All of a sudden, $765 million going to a camera company to do pharmaceutical stuff. That's what I want. We want transparency. And then you look around and what's happening? Board, uh, members of their board and their family members making millions on the stock market just before this announcement came out. Somebody knew something. Transparency. That's what we want. We've already had 119 million dollars returned uh, because we raised issues about the lack of transparency, and well not people should have had this money. One company, 109 million dollars. And when we followed up with them, he says, "What are you going to do with this money?" We've looked at your, your, your statements, your quarterly statements, and you shouldn't have had this money." They said, "Well, we didn't ask for it. Somebody called us and offered it to us. So if somebody offer you 109 million dollars, I suspect you will take it, and so that's what they did. But when we raised the issues, they sent the money back. So we're going to do the same thing with drop speed. Because let me tell you something: everybody's trying to get a vaccine. I suspect that there'll be several vaccines developed. And I tell people all the time: I'm old enough to remember the polio vaccine. There were two vaccines. One by Jonas Salk and one by a man named Albert Sabin. The Albert Sabin vaccine was the preferred vaccine because it was a drop of serum on a lump of sugar. The Jonas Salk vaccine was a shot. Guess who got the shots and guess what communities got the sugar. That's the kind of stuff we're doing with this community. We want to make sure that it's not just efficient And effective. make sure that equity is in this as well. So transparency, uh, equity, efficiency, effectiveness, we're going to be doing all of that.
2: Back to the Postal Service and the election for a moment. Um, What are you going to do come uh, November? Are you going to vote by mail or are you going to put on a mask
0: and show up at the polls? I always vote absentee in person. I will probably vote on the 5th of October because I'm asking people. Don't wait, especially those who know right now how you're going to vote. I'm asking people to start voting on October the 5th. My daughter, who is running my uh, re-election effort, she is already mapping out a strategy. She said to me today, we aren't going to have any football in the fall, so we won't be having a whole lot of tailgating. We're going to make voting one big tailgating party. So we're going to be tailgating at the booth. Every place that we can, we're going to start voting early. We are have declared October to be election month.
2: When you say in person, will you be putting your ballot in the mail or will no. you be, you'll be voting early at a polling booth?
0: At a polling, designated polling place. You know, in Colorado, they have ballot boxes all over town. You go to Denver, Colorado on election day, they've got places where people can sit at their, their kitchen tables, fill out their ballot, and go and drop it down at the corner, buying and Market Streets, or go to the library. They've got ballot boxes all over town. That's what we ought to be doing in this country. You can make ballot boxes secure. They secure them in Denver, Colorado, all over the state of Colorado. They just added 150 ballot boxes all over the state so it can be convenient for people to, to vote. So when they go out to purchase their groceries or to purchase uh, their pharmaceuticals, they can stop by the ballot box and vote. You don't have to be lined up in streets and waiting on people, coming in contact with people. That's what we ought to be doing. And that's one of the things I'm going to be asking uh, my side to do uh, on Saturday. is to put the money here and encourage jurisdictions to have ballot boxes Uh, strategically located throughout these communities.
1: Congressman, um, well, since we're talking about voting in South Carolina, you've got a big race, Senate race down there that people are watching closely. Lindsey Graham being challenged by Jamie Harrison. The Cook Political Report has just uh, shifted their rating from a likely win for Lindsey Graham to just leaning How do you assess that race? What chances do you give Jamie Harrison of upsetting Lindsey Graham in South Carolina?
0: I'm going to do one better than the Cook Report. It's a toss-up. It's a toss-up. I give Jamie a very good chance to pull this off, simply because I've looked at the polling as well. The last poll I saw, I think it was Clinton. Where what they company was? It wasn't Jamie's poll, it had it at 44-44. When I looked behind the tabs, I saw that Jamie was leading among independents by 10 points. That, to me, tells me something about that race. To me, it's a toss-up.
2: Well, uh, we will be uh, watching closely to see if you are uh, as good a political forecaster as you are at influencing uh, Democratic politics. But, uh, Congressman, I thank you for joining us, and uh, you are always welcome on Skullduggery.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Just remember, I lost
2: three times before I got elected. <laughs> it's, a learning cur- it's a learning curve for all of us.
1: Right? Thanks so much, Congressman. Really appreciate all right, it. Thank you. Thank all right, you. Take care
2: we now have with us uh, yasmin taib a uh, bernie sanders delegate to the democratic convention a uh, senior policy council to demand progress a progressive organization yasmin welcome to skullduggery
3: thank you so much happy to join you
2: so uh We had the uh, opening night of the convention last night marked by uh, a lineup of Republicans, Christine Todd Whitman, John Kasich, Susan Molinari, and then followed by uh, Bernie Sanders and, of course, Michelle Obama. What was your take on the opening night and, in particular, the presence of so many prominent Republicans speaking at a Democratic convention?
3: I think that the first night was very positive, articulating a forward-looking vision by the Democratic Party, specifically appreciated the inclusion of voices from you know ordinary americans talking about their struggles and plight during this pandemic and how it's impacted their lives and what the party will specifically do to be supportive i did appreciate the very strong and passionate remarks by senator sanders by michelle obama in particular talking about the unprecedented <laughs> moment that we're in right now and what it takes for all of us to come together to ensure that we defeat Donald Trump in November who as you know we all know serves as this existential threat and i believe that the democratic national committee the party you know included the voices of republicans during the lineup for the convention to note how you know, supportive their message is across different communities, whether it's the base, progressives, moderates, disaffected, Republicans, independents, that we're all uniting um, behind Vice President Biden to defeat Trump in November.
2: But I believe you've said that you were not thrilled by seeing all those Republicans up there. Tell us why you were not thrilled to see them.
3: So... You know, as, as as someone who identifies as a progressive, as a DNC member, a lifelong Democrat, this is the the one event we have every four years. It's you know, it's essentially this massive party, a pep rally, um, to get our base excited about you know knocking well. I was going to say knocking on doors, but, you know, making calls, donating, volunteering and doing everything we can to to support our nominee and to ensure that the ticket is successful in November. I would say, you know, as a progressive and my my colleagues on the DNC and many Bernie delegates, We're not particularly thrilled to see so many Republicans during the lineup, because, again, they don't speak for our party, right? Um, These are individuals that are are not supportive of reproductive rights. These are, you know, individuals who are union busters. So seeing them as, as part of the convention is a little unsettling and uncomfortable for a lot of folks in our party, but I do understand why the DNC and the Biden campaign chose to include them.
1: You know, in some ways, Yasmeen, I think the real blow for unity would be Bernie Sanders' speech, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, Biden is not going to get a lot of Republicans voting for him, maybe marginal numbers. But party unity is important in terms of enthusiasm, in terms of getting out the vote, And we all remember four years ago when there was considerable amount of tension between the Bernie faction and the, and the Hillary faction, and Bernie Sanders did not endorse her until just a few days before the convention, this is a very different moment. And that speech last night was a fairly full-throated endorsement of Joe Biden and not just making the argument that we need to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris because that's how we get rid of Donald Trump. It was affirmative. It was positive. So what was your reaction to that speech for Bernie Sanders?
3: I thought he I thought Senator Sanders did a really great job. And as you noted, it wasn't simply a speech to say, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm supporting Vice President Biden. I didn't get the nomination. But, you know, we, we need to support him to get rid of Trump. It, it was more of a very positive-looking message, again, highlighting various policy proposals put forth by the Biden campaign, including supporting right a living wage, um, support for huma- humane immigration policies, when we're talking, again, about making sure our country is welcoming to the most vulnerable. And there's a stark difference between Vice President Biden and uh, Donald Trump. Vice President Biden has committed to repealing the Muslim African refugee bans immediately. Right? He has indicated his support for fighting to end institutionalized racism, police brutality, calling for accountability, um, you know, supporting a human rights-centered foreign policy. And having Senator Sanders highlight some of those planks in, in his remarks, I think, was incredibly important, talking very sincerely and directly to his millions and millions of, of supporters across the country um, again, emphasizing the, the, the importance of this moment that we're in, I think was very
1: effective. So so Yasmin, are you, and uh, would you say your progressive colleagues are all in for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? Not, by which I don't mean that you support uh, every single part of, of their agenda, but you're all in in terms of getting them elected.
3: Absolutely. And I mean, I'm mostly in touch with... You know, the the Bernie progressive DNC members, delegates and individuals, you know, that have been active for the most part in the Democratic Party. I imagine there's a very small minority of Senator Sanders's supporters that, you know, for whatever reason, may may ultimately not vote in November. But I would say that's that's a very, very small number.
2: You're all in. And yet you did not vote for the party platform. Why not?
3: So, the you know, we're in the midst of, of this global pandemic. We're talking about coronavirus that has claimed the lives of more than 160,000 Americans. And some studies indicate that number is much, much higher. Um, you know, when we say health care is a human right, we need to mean it and fight for it. And I think it's incredibly important for us to move away from a profit-based health care system and you know universal health care as as you may know was part of the DNC platform in, in 1980 and I believe that we're past the time and should you know face the reality and just an injustice of denying health care as a human right and we need to do everything we possibly can to continue to push our party and our nominee to the left and and continue to advocate for a progressive agenda
2: and the platform does not, call for universal health health care. It does not call for Medicare for all, although it does call for restoring and enhancing Obamacare. Mm-hmm. That's not enough for you.
3: I it, it was not. No.
2: Yeah. You uh, recently or demand progress. Uh, the group you're affiliated with was among 50 progressive organizations that recently signed a letter to the Biden campaign asking that it turn the pages on 9-11 policies that have resulted in an endless cycle of war. Now, Joe Biden has supported most of those policies over the years. Uh, he voted for the Iraq war. Most of his senior foreign policy advisors are centrists who have been deeply involved in shaping many of those 9-11 policies. How comfortable are you with the Biden foreign policy team right now? And what would you like to see changed?
3: Yeah. So as as you noted, Demand Progress led a coalition letter to uh, the Biden campaign in, in May that was signed on to by uh, you know more than 50 national groups. It was really the, the, the only and, and largest effort taken by the left. Um, this was as soon as Senator Sanders left the race, trying to advocate what the campaign What we want to see from from a potential Biden administration in terms of calling on him to support robust diplomacy, multilateralism, and to the rampant agenda of militarization that we're seeing, as you know, again, for decades, U.S. foreign policy has really been focus on confrontation with perceived adversaries and doing so has has militarized our our response to global challenges and has really distorted our national security spending priorities we specifically would like a commitment from the Biden campaign to support repealing the 2001-2002 uh, authorization for use of military force. Don't Almost they, so everybody don't they, is for that by that, now, right? Right?
2: right? I mean, Obama supported repealing it. I mean, I, even I, Trump has talked about repealing it. That's kind of a consensus view in foreign policy circles, although nobody seems actually to have the uh, gumption to actually do it. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And for us, having those uh, specific commitments is, is incredibly important. We also, as as you probably saw in that letter, it, the letter articulated 10 specific principles that we'd want to see the Biden team commit to. One of them was also supporting a, a reduction in the defense military budget. We're talking about a bloated budget that annually it's over seven hundred billion. Um, we also called on him to pose specific regime change, broad-based sanctions, you know, a commitment to supporting human rights centered foreign policy, and that means ending support for governments that violate human rights. We have objections to a number <laughs> of folks in the Biden foreign policy orbit that, you know, oppose blocking sales of arms to Saudi Arabia. Um, and the UAE, and as you know, that's a, that's a major priority.
2: Who, who are those who you object to?
3: Michelle Flournoy is one, and, and Avril Haynes is another, because of her support, Avril Haynes specifically for her support and endorsement of a torture. Gina Haspel, for CIA director, and also for her role in, in working at Palantir since uh, leaving the Obama administration. And Michelle Flournoy, as you know, her consulting firm, the role she had and her opposition, again, to blocking arms to Saudi when the vast majority of the Democratic caucus was on the other end of that issue is is particularly troubling for us.
1: Well, let, let's talk about uh, some of those particulars. Like with Avril Haines, for example. So, working for Palantir, what specifically did she do at Palantir that concerns you? Because my understanding is that she was largely, if not exclusively, involved in advising them on diversity issues, bringing in more women, more minorities, in large part because Palantir is a, you know, is a real kind of feeder company for the administration. That way you would get more diverse national security staff as well, presumably.
3: Yeah, but I mean, for us, it's the fact that she was consulting for a company that has given this administration the tools and ability to be able to deport countless, you know, undocumented immigrants and tearing apart our immigrant communities.
1: Right. It's the associate, the association, Absolutely. as opposed to what she was specifically. Doing And then on, on Gina Haspel, who clearly is not someone, I mean, she also had an association with the uh, torture program. And that is your main concern with her endorsing Gina Haspel for that. I mean, because the alternative, I mean, I, I remember at the time that uh, Trump was considering Tom Cotton <laughs> to be uh, head of the uh, CIA. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you know, is is it progressives are not going to get their CIA director. So the question is, right? I mean, it w- was Gina Haspel the best of not very good possibilities?
3: Yeah, and I've, I've certainly heard those arguments. So at the time, I, I was actually working at the Center for Victims of Torture, and our organization took the lead on the nomination fight for Gina Haspel. The, the very first week that Haspel was nominated is when Avril Haynes came up publicly in support of her, endorsed her. Her endorsement was noted, and the media was cited on you know, the website on the White House. For us, also, the the, the rumors that Tom Cotton was someone that was an alternative to Gina Haspel, they, they were simply rumors. You know, if, if he was going to be nominated, he wasn't going to get confirmed. Mm-hmm. And the coalition of organizations that were working to block Gina Haspel's nomination, we knew that. So, you know, for us, it was, it was incredibly important, again, to draw the line, to say that someone who had an operational role in torture had absolutely no right to get promoted, to become the director <laughs> of, of the agency. And for us, it was particularly troubling to see someone from, from the Obama administration mm-hmm.
2: You know, your your letter called for, a, I think, a $200 billion cut in defense spending, which is a lot of money. But it's worth noting that Trump, although he has supported bigger military budgets, has actually taken steps to reduce U.S. military presence and, and footprint around the world. He's cutting troops, uh, U.S. troops in Germany, for instance, and in, in one start. Most of the Democratic Party has criticized criticized him for these moves and in terms of its post Russia gate critique has criticized Trump for not being more robust in military aid to Ukraine for instance this was a major subject of uh, on the grounds on which they impeached him so how do you sort of process and and view the democratic critique of Trump for not being robust enough robust sufficiently in confronting Russia and providing military aid to countries like Ukraine?
3: Yeah, I mean, our criticisms really in terms of when we're talking about the the amount of spending, um, yeah, the, the, again, talking about the bloated Pentagon budget, our concerns has been that we need to reassess our priorities. We're, we're talking about You know, right now the U.S. has more than 240,000 active duty and reserve troops in, what, in over 170 countries globally. That is incredibly problematic, even in the sense that Trump has maybe taken some steps to try to indicate that perhaps he's supportive of scaling down our troops uh, overseas or, or taking these steps that progressives would Find welcoming and and supportive. I find that mainly as just you know attempts by 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 Trump to kind of distract us from from other national crises that that are happening. So where our message has been very clear in terms of what we want to see from the next administration. We want to ensure that we're scaling back. We want to ensure that the next administration supports military restraint, robust diplomacy, a a very fundamental shift in U.S. foreign policy. We absolutely should not have a, a Pentagon budget annually that is over $700 billion. And I think you know that the Congressional Progressive Caucus, most recently, they put forth an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Bill and that was led by Representative Poe lee and Senator Sanders in the Senate calling for a 10 percent cut, which unfortunately failed. But we saw it as an encouraging effort by uh, members in the Democratic caucus to talk about what we'd like to see in, in terms of how we want to reassess our priorities. Mm-hmm.
2: What was the response to the letter from the Biden campaign?
3: So, so the response to the letter uh, immediately after we sent the letter, the the Biden team has actually set up regular six week calls with uh, a handful of our organizations. These calls are administered and led by Tony Blinken and Vice President Biden's foreign policy team. And I do appreciate that they've provided that opportunity to our organizations to engage the campaign on progressive foreign policy priorities on a regular basis.
1: Essentially, it was going to be my question. I was just going to make the point that, I mean, Biden is not known as an ideologically rigid politician, and he has moved on the domestic side in terms of climate change and health care and economic policy somewhat toward the progressive side. So how optimistic are you that you'll see that kind of progress uh, from your perspective in terms of national security and foreign policy? And just an addendum to that question, the first night there was not a lot of discussion of foreign policy, but tonight former Secretary of State John Kerry will be giving uh, a keynote. What would be music to your ears from John Kerry?
3: I mean, for us, having a very strong commitment from – the Biden team on talking about their support and reaffirming congressional war powers again is is fundamental to to our organizations. As you know, Vice President Biden has indicated his support for ending U.S. complicity and support in the again the Saudi and UAE led war in Yemen. We'd like more kind of concrete uh, and specific commitments. And, you know, we want a foreign policy that is, again, very much human rights centered. So talking about the fact that we need to be leading with with our values domestically and abroad, ending support for governments that, that violate human rights, and there should be no exception to that, right? And the, it's a kind of different conversation if we talk about Israel, but, you know, I, I mentioned that because that was also part of our letter, that we should not be providing arms and military assistance to countries that engage in systematic human rights violations and, you know, getting very specific commitments from the Biden team that they will support a robust refugee resettlement program, that they will Talk about the the kind of the root causes of the uh, migration refugee crisis, that they will support admitting 125,000 refugees in their first year in office. The other commitments we'd like to see in terms of personnel would be, you know, closing the revolving door between the defense industry and the Pentagon. That is a, a top priority for our organizations and our coalition is ensuring that the right people are in the right positions to make um Decisions on on behalf of of our communities.
2: And uh, Yasmin, are you uh, running for the uh, state Senate in Virginia this year or next year? No. (laughs) You did run, I did right.
3: run. Um, right? We came okay. very close. We lost by about two points, just a couple hundred votes of defeating a forty-year incumbent. But
2: all right. Well, listen. Thanks for joining us, and um, we will continue to see how the uh, tensions between the progressives and the Biden campaign play out.
1: We like we like tension.
0: It's good. It Keeps us uh, with the uh, story. Something to, to talk about on Skull <laughs> right. Thanks a lot. Bye.